0: Welcome to episode number 73 of 100 plus, an overview of 100 of the most important people, events and ideas in the last 2,000 years. This is a survey of the forces and factors that have shaped today's world, Western civilization, the Christian faith, and you. This series of lectures is based on the idea that if we back up to the intersection between the Greeks and the Romans with the Jews and the Christians, and then trace the development of this new group as it unfolds through the Roman Empire, Middle Ages, Renaissance, Reformation, Enlightenment, Modernity, and Post-Modernity, we will not only gain a better understanding of the past, we will also gain greater clarity about the present and a better understanding of what it looks like to be faithful in following Jesus today. In this lecture, we focus on the fourth of the four men who rule from the grave. That is, those whose ideas and ideologies not only shaped the 20th century, but continue to shape it today. We've already discussed Charles Darwin, Karl Marx, and Friedrich Nietzsche. Today, we turn to Sigmund Freud. Some of you have asked if I started this podcast with the list of 100 topics already in mind. After all, um, it's clear I gave remarkably little thought to this project when I announced that I would do it. COVID had uh, sort of fallen upon us, and I was doing daily devotions Monday through Friday, and somebody said, you know, you really ought to do something on Saturday. And I said, I'm not going to, and then more people asked, and I said, well, let me think about it. And then I thought, well, you know what I'll do? I'll do a little church history thing. I'll do five minutes on various topics. I'd wanted to do something like this for a while. I really believe that we're shaped by the past, and that if we want to understand the world in which we're living. We have to look backwards, not just around. And so I've, I've always sort of had you know, this this lecture uh, series in the back of my mind. I'd outlined a book about it one time, just never got to it. So I said, that, that's what I'll do. And I'll just do these five-minute clips. And um, I can do these without any prep, because I'm just going to. I sat down, and I wrote out a list of 100 topics. So I probably think I had 85. And then I opened up some books and I Googled other people's lists of the top hundred things that have happened in church history, and uh, I added to their list. I sort of refined my list, and I came up with that hundred. So um, I, I did all that. And um, by the way, I, I'm not necessarily following. Um, uh, I'm not necessarily following the same order. It's tweaked here or there as I get into a topic. Well, first of all, because I stopped doing five minutes, right? I mean, it was, the, it was five minutes, and then the next one was 10, and the next one was 15, and then I jumped, I think, to 30 or 45, and I've sort of stayed there. Uh, I know Joe Rogan goes for like three or four hours. I'm no Joe Rogan. I'm not going to do that. Uh, and this has taken a lot more time than I planned. By the way, I also get asked, how long do you work on these, these lectures? And my answer to that is the same as what I say about a sermon, um, I work on a sermon about six, t- a sermon takes about six hours and 40 years. <laughs> so it's the 40 years that matter. Sometimes they take seven hours, maybe they take eight hours, but uh, it's the 40 years part that really uh, factors in. So anyway, I drafted this list and I started down it and I've tweaked it from time to time. And then part way through, I decided this really wasn't, I really didn't want to do a church history series. I wanted to do more of a Western Civ meets church history series because I think that if we're we're going to understand what's going on now, we not only need to understand sort of the evolution of culture, we also, um, or we, we not only need to understand church history, we need to understand the evolution of culture. So, um... That's why uh, I, I've done things recently on Lincoln and Marx and you know, Darwin. I mean, these are not exactly church history characters. So anyway, uh, all that brings us uh, to today's topic, which is on Freud. And uh, up ahead in about 10 or 12 episodes, uh, we're going to look. I, I've got two lectures penciled in for the 60s. Uh, one on just sort of the 60s in general, and one on the sexual revolution in the 60s. And when I wrote a book four or five years ago now on the, on the future, I listed one of the four glaciers, because I said, I'm not, I'm not gonna look way ahead, and I'm not a futurist, I don't even know how to do that, but there are these four slow-moving, but massively uh, significant glaciers that have been moving through the culture for a long time, one of them was accelerating technology. Uh, one of them was, uh, was uh, globalization. One of them was changing uh, social, sexual, and marital dynamics. And then one of them was on you know, changing worldviews and, and religious ideologies. So I picked at that time, without before I even had uh, really done all the research for the book, I picked this idea that we needed to look at changing social, sexual, marital dynamics. and uh, and. Then I started to do my research and I was shocked by how much things changed after the sexual revolution. I mean, just, and, and you know, we continue to see uh, changes today, but, you know, you back up before the 60s and uh, on, in TV, the Dick Van Dyke show, or any show, uh, Lucy and, and Desi Arnaz married, but they're sleeping in separate beds. Uh, I mean, there's just a, it's just a very different dynamic. So... None of that would be true. I don't think the 60s would have been the 60s, and the sexual revolution would have been the sexual revolution without the influence of Sigmund Freud. So we'll get to more of that sort of impact when we get to uh, those lectures. We have a few things between now and then, small matters like you know World War I and World War II, but um, today we are turning to the last of the four who rule from the grave. We've covered Darwin, Marx, and Nietzsche, we now turn to this uh, Austrian doctor who launched us deeper into the world of the mind, Sigmund Freud. He is the one who brings forward this idea of unconscious motivation, uh, of repression. Uh, He gives us the words id, ego, and superego. He's the one who brings a lot of attention to the importance of the life of the mind and to the various drives we have, in particular our sexual drive. One of the articles I skimmed this week in preparation for this uh, opened by uh, saying this, quote, the, the makers of the modern mind are many, but few can match the influence of Sigmund Freud. His basic ideas have now become part of, parcel of the contemporary mindset. His terms are now part of our vocabulary. And his ideas of the unconscious has formed much of the structure for the therapeutic culture all around us. And we live very much in a therapeutic age. Um, In his work, different guy, uh, but in his work, uh, Peter Kramer, the author of Freud, Inventor of the Modern Mind, wrote, it's impossible to imagine the modern mind without Freud. Consider a single area, literature, The inner monologue or stream of consciousness in the novels of James Joyce and Virginia Woolf bears the mark of Freud's methods of psychoanalysis. In their use of dense symbolism and wordplay, T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound pay unwilling homage to Freud's account of the complexly encoded effects of hidden desires. Uh, Even after the limited modern era of the last century, we remain Freudians in our daily lives. We discuss intimate concerns in Freud's language using his words like ego and defensiveness. So Freud has his fingerprints all over this uh, moment, and uh, his influence added fuel to the erosion of the Christian worldview and Christian understanding of, of human nature, His legacy remains with us now and if we're going to make sense of today we have to understand Freud's impact. So we now uh, look at the final 19th century uh, ruler from the grave. So uh, it feels like I should remind you before we jump in there though that there were other things happening during the 19th century. Uh, other things besides the geopolitical, um, you know, unraveling and, and, and shifts because of Karl Marx. Other things besides the influence of science and in particular of Darwin on social changes and social evolutionary theory. Other things besides uh, the nihilism described by Nietzsche. You had changes, for instance, in legal theory that were happening at this point. Uh, We see some of that happening. If you're into this kind of thing, we can go back and and look at the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Um, You also have have some very significant shifts that take place when uh, you have Oliver uh, Wendell Holmes as a Supreme Court justice, and this is in the early 20th century, but uh, his memorable line, the law is the majority vote of the nation that can lick the others. And that sort of, Highlights, I mean that's 20th century, but we're getting very close to that. and that highlights this idea that there is not a divine law that people are trying to access. There is not some universal moral code that we are appealing to, uh, a sense of justice and right and wrong that's rooted in the character of God. Uh, law was moving away from that and moving into different ideas. You get the writings, a lot of significant writers. Uh, Alexis Tocqueville is going to write at this point. Uh, Origin of Species obviously comes out, Communist Manifesto comes out. The number one book in the 19th century, (laughs) I'm setting you up for a a head fake here, because the number one book in every century has been the Bible. Uh, The New York Times doesn't list the Bible as the number one best-selling book. Almost every week it is, but it doesn't get listed because they wouldn't know whether to list it as fiction or nonfiction, And also they would say, and there's some validity to this, Uh, that it's got so many different translations. They just count each translation differently. And so now you've got, you know, I don't know, you've got a hundred different translations. And so they sort of divide the number up. But the number one book uh, that was for sale was the Bible. The number two book, the number two best-selling book in uh, the 19th century was Uncle Tom's Cabin. Uh, And this is a book, if you've not read it, uh, obviously, the term Uncle Tom today is very uh, derogatory and, and no one uses that term. However, if you read the book, the character, Uncle Tom, is a Christ figure. He is a noble, uh, very godly person. And uh, he is a Christ figure. And it's a, it's a powerful book. I recommended it last month to a guy. He read it. He couldn't believe it. So, uh, and, and it was written by Harriet Beecher Stowe trying to help northerners understand what was actually going on in the south and lincoln said it was one of the most significant books in terms of ending um ending slavery moving the country towards the civil war the number uh, the number two best-selling book in the 19th century was moby dick which i recently commented on in something. I'm recording myself way too often, either in a sermon or a Friday update or a daily devotion or this podcast. One of those I just mentioned, my roommate from college called me a while back and said, hey, have you read Moby Dick? And I said, "Uh, yeah, like 25 years ago. He goes, isn't it great? And I said, "Uh, what page are you on? He's on like page 60. And I go, yeah, call me, uh, call me in another couple hundred pages. And he did. And he's like, oh my goodness. I just read 30 pages about different color, different kinds of krill. And I go, yeah, wait till you get to the all the different definitions of white. I go, I was just like, oh, are you ki-? I felt like I had to read the book because it's such a significant book. But oh well. So um, that was a rabbit trail. Uh, another thing that is significant, very significant to understand about the 19th century, is that this is when advertisement starts to come into play. So today it's likely that you will be shaped by somewhere between 3,000 and 5,000 different ads. And they are designed to create a need uh, and to fulfill it. So some things we don't even know we need until we see the ad and then we go, oh, well I, I need that. Uh, we are shaped as consumers and to understand the modern world especially in uh, North America consumeristic culture. You have to understand ads. So there's all kinds of things going on besides these four guys that we've talked about and the Civil War and and what have you. But our focus is on this uh, Austrian medical doctor, scientist, neurologist, psychological pioneer, and uh, the inventor of the field of psychoanalysis. this is uh, Sigmund Freud. So um, as you might imagine, I, I'll say this, I don't know that I have to, but I'm not a straight up fan of uh, Freud's. I don't agree with uh, a lot of what he uh, advocated, starting with his sort of strident atheism. Um, but there's a lot of critics of Freud. A lot of people will say Freud was a genius, and he, he wrote in so many different Fields and he read and so many. His research was done not just in a lab, but I mean he was he was analyzing himself, he's analyzing dreams, he's reading literature, his theories developed, they're pulling in Shakespeare, they're pulling in all kinds of things. So uh, he's a significant player, absolutely. Uh, and we don't want to simply stiff arm him. But um, but I'm not a, a straight-up fan of Freud's, but Uh, Part of what I I do like, and and by the way, he's got a lot of critics as well, including people in the field of psychiatry and psychology, the the, the advocacy of psychoanalysis as a therapeutic method to treat people who are are struggling or stalled or addicted or mentally ill, um, the field of psychoanalysis is not necessarily a growing one. And there's lots of different ways that we try and treat and process people who have uh, mental health disorders or who are depressed or whatever. So you have um, psychiatrists who are medical doctors, as Freud was, who, who look into the field of, um, of pharmacology. So you've got all the psychopharmacological, um, you've got all the antidepressants, you've got all that kind of medication. Psychiatrists, by the way, are also moving into more uh, uh, the, uh, brain scans and looking and doing uh, CAT scans and MRIs and those kinds of things to understand the brain and which parts of the brain are lit up, and what that might say about how your brain is working or not working. So you've got psychiatrists. you've got psychologists who are not trained as medical doctors, and they're more, obviously, in th- they're going to be engaged in sort of non-pharmacological so a lot more talk therapy or maybe they're going to recommend some sort of group therapy or they're going to recommend horseback riding or they're going to recommend more sleep or they're going to then you go to a medical doctor and the doctor's going to look at hormone imbalances or other chemical issues or they're going to look at bad thyroid or they're going to say you're depressed because of this there's all kinds of ways that you're going to study you know what's causing the anxiety attacks that some people are having is this is this chemical is this, is this stress-related? Is this something else? So in all those fields, and there are, there are others. Uh, for instance, you've got pastoral counseling, which is what I was trained in. Uh, arguably not, not very well. Uh, I, I joke that nobody, nobody comes to me for two appointments. Uh, I get a lot of people. And I, in, in my defense, I'm pretty good at helping people in a crisis. I don't do a lot of therapy. I, I've not learned how to do it or do it well. There's lots of people who do it so much more effectively than I do. So, but there's pastoral counseling in which... The, so I am coming at things from the vantage point, a very different vantage point, of course, than Freud. I'm coming at things, pastors come at things, from a more of a biblical framework. So uh, you're feeling guilty. Well... Maybe that's the Holy Spirit. Maybe that's the result of sin. Maybe you should feel guilty. Maybe not. I mean, guilt's a very uh, complicated thing. Some people feel guilty when they shouldn't. Some people don't feel guilty when they should. Uh, but I, my like second year as a college pastor, I got called into the dean's office. Uh, there was, uh, there was uh, it wasn't our group, but there was another Christian ministry that was... Uh, was getting in trouble with the university for various things and the dean wanted to talk with all of us and uh, she asked me a question she said do you believe in in counseling and i said well sure i believe in counseling and she says well we have this other group and they're they're not recommending that students use our counseling center and i said well okay so that's a little bit of a different question i said so uh I think that there are, there are assumptions that we make about who we are and what matters in human nature and, and God and right and wrong. And I want somebody to get directed. I want somebody to, to get help. I want somebody to be mentored by somebody that shares a basic worldview and that says, uh, yeah, if you do this, you're feeling guilty because that's the wrong thing to do. You shouldn't do that. So let's work on that as opposed to just trying to help you absolve yourself or walk away or repress your anxiety, whatever it is. So counseling is very different. We live in a therapeutic age because there's lots of counseling. Previously, even in my lifetime, previously people didn't go seek therapists nearly as much as they do today. Part of that was because uh, people I think had better friends. Life went a little bit slower You spent more time in small groups. Other people were helping you process your pain and confusion. Uh, And part of that, uh, so part of that is we we didn't have these therapists. Part of that is the influence of Freud and the growth of these fields. So uh, lots of people have moved beyond Freud's psychoanalytic approach uh, of, of, of counseling or of therapy. And they have embraced other kinds of therapy. So I'm not alone, or Christians are not alone, or whoever is not alone in criticizing Freud for some aspects of what he thought. His, um, his field has moved on, but he's an influential guy and he was a genius on many fronts. And so we are taking a deeper dive into him now. So by way of your general flyover biography, um, Sigmund Freud, uh, whose birth name was Sigmund Schlomo Freud. I'm sure I'm butchering that first name. Uh, He was born in 1856. His father, Jacob, uh, was a 40-year-old wool merchant. And his mother was 20 years um, uh, younger than his father was. Uh, Father had two children from a previous marriage. Uh, Sigmund was the oldest of eight children between uh, Jake and his, uh, his wife, Sigmund's mom, Amelia. Uh, they are Jewish uh, in, a, in a heavily Catholic uh, town of Freiburg. So early on, uh, when he's a child, he will move to Vienna and he will spend almost the rest of his life there. At the end of his life, he's going to have to flee Hitler's influence and, and they will get out of Vienna. But basically, he will live his entire life in Vienna. He trained as a medical doctor at the university there, graduated in 1881 with a specialization in uh, neuropathy. So he works initially much more as a scientist studying uh, various, various causes for uh, mental illness. When he falls in love, uh, then he realizes I need, I need to make more money than I'm going to make, uh, doing what I'm doing. And so he goes more into the, uh, I think at that point he actually goes to medical school and, uh, he is going to then be a doctor, but he's going to focus on, uh, what at the time were called nervous disorders. So, um, his initial theories, uh, are are going to hold that the root cause of uh, of neuroses of of dysfunctional mental behavior and beliefs uh, was the harmful traumatic experiences uh, that had been repressed uh, from the conscious uh, awareness, but continued to control people's thoughts and uh, actions. So this is so unconscious motivation is a big part of what Freud is going to put forward. So he argues that we are determined, right? That nothing happens by accident. So this is why you might have heard of the term Freudian slip. So if you say something that's different than what you expected you were gonna say, uh, that's called the Freudian slip. And the argument that Freud would have is, look, that's not an accident. You You don't say that by accident. Like your brain has to tell you to say that. And so your brain has not just a conscious part that you're aware of, what you're thinking about right now, it has an unconscious part or a whole set of ideas and and, uh, understandings that you could call to mind in a moment. You're just not thinking about it. But if I ask you, you know, what's your favorite kind of Ben and Jerry's ice cream and you think about it, you could tell me. Or if I asked you who won this football game, or if I asked you what book you're reading, you're not thinking about those things right now. But as soon as as you think about them, you can access them. Freud's argument was there was a third category. And this is our unconscious parts of our brain. And this unconscious is is buried. Like we can't access it. It's repressed. And yet it is getting out in various ways. It's shaping our behavior it's driving us to do th- certain things or to s- or to think in certain ways. So, this is going to be like one of his big contributions. Now, this idea conscious, uh, unconscious, preconscious, uh this is different than what he will develop late in his life. I think it's in the 50s. Uh, he publishes some lectures in which he comes forward with these terms id ego and superego. It's sort of different than that. His He's going to to be doing research for 50 years. So part of what you get with Freud is his theories continue to, to change and evolve as he continues to learn and study and then say, no, I thought that before, now I no longer do. But a big idea with Freud is our unconscious or suppressed ideas. Part of this also is that we have drives that we may not be aware of. So one of our drives is just the drive to be alive. And so we, we're driven to eat, and we're driven to sleep, and we're driven for you know, food and water. A big drive that we have, and at various times he sort of puts these together, uh, is our sex drive. And so he makes it, Freud, Freud has a lot to say about sex and uh, believes that we are, we are shaped a lot by our sexual drives, not all of which will we admit to ourselves and so he will have this idea that starting at a very young age, children are shaped by uh, the pursuit of pleasure, which he sort of links to sex, and so you have the oral, anal, and phallic stages of development, and then you're, so uh, where where infants are going to get pleasure in different kinds of parts of their body, and when you get to the phallic stage, the young girls have penis envy because they don't have a penis and then the boys are going to get this Oedipus complex in which they're going, to, they're going to be attracted to their mom and they're going to try and push their dad away. And So all of this, you might have heard of, all of this is, is Freud and uh, also with Freud you have a lot of, of discussion and talk about the importance of dreams because he thought dreams was one of the ways that our unconscious mind is trying to assert itself. And he thought dreams were heavily uh, symbolic. So in psychoanalysis, you're doing all this word play and association exercises and dream analysis and all this stuff in which the, the therapist is trying to get to your unconscious thought and pull it out and maybe... Uh, Some of your unconscious thoughts are of early traumatic experiences. And so you've suppressed these things. And it was fears, or it was angers, or it was whatever it was, something that you're no longer accessing, but it's shaping you. And so the the psychoanalyst needs to pull this out and then interpret all these things and explain them to you. So Freud um, worked in Vienna. He's going to be both a professor at the medical school, but he's also going to have his own uh, practice, and uh, he's going to be a practicing psychiatrist uh, working with, with people, a lot of women in particular, who have uh, nervous uh, disorders, and that is going to last. Um, he will stay there until 1938, again, when he flees Austria because of uh, the rise of uh, Nazi persecution. And he dies of cancer in uh, 1939. So he was not writing in 1950, as I as I had just mentioned. But um, he actually will end his own life. Uh, he's got cancer, and, and he takes uh, a double or a triple dose of morphine in order to uh, end his life there at the end. Um, so Freud is known as the uh, father of uh, psychoanalysis. and. Uh, Two other things to note about this: um, he he spends a little bit of time exploring hypnosis as a way to sort of get uh, behind the scenes into the unconscious mind. Um, that does not work. He then ends up spending a lot more of his time focusing on the interpretation of dreams. So. Um, Look, the, the fields, as, as I'm hinting here, the fields of psychology and psychiatry have changed a lot uh, since Freud sort of launched all this stuff. But he's a pioneer, and, uh, and we need to understand that, uh, that while people have moved away from a lot of his thinking, uh, that's not to fault him. He was a scientist, He he did a lot of work trying to understand things. By the way, he will claim as will some psychoanalysts, that what they're doing is science. One of the hard things about psychiatry and psychology and all of this is that a lot of things, once you have a human uh, subject, it's just really hard to run any kind of controlled experiment that allows you to see falsifiability. In order for science to be, in order for a theory to be a theory in science, right, you've got to be able to disprove it. And it just becomes, really hard. It's really hard to know what is working, but uh, by and large a lot of people have moved away from psychoanalysis. So um, so in light of all this, um, it's worth noting, in light of the fact that, that Freud was such a significant player, it's worth reflecting for just a little bit on his relationship with God or how he thought about God or maybe to put a a sharper point on it, his antipathy towards uh, religion and God. So um, he is most famous for his uh, work in psychiatry, but he actually has a little bit of a side hustle uh, attacking religion. He will write against religion. He will write a number of books. Uh, Totem and Taboo, The Future of an Illusion, Civilization and Its Discontents, and Moses and monotheism, in which he is focusing on uh, religion. And uh, if you read any of these, you will see that that he thinks that uh, that religion and uh, and, and sort of the the guilt that religion can bring is one of the big causes for neuroses, for repressed desires and uh, other things. And so... um, he is—he is going to say he is going to de- describe religion in various ways. He's going to say, uh, for instance, that it's an attempt to control the Oedipus complex. So it's an attempt to create social norms that that uh, keep boys from uh, having uh, erotic attraction to their mothers. Um, it's going to be a means of giving structure to society. It's going to be a form of uh, wish fulfillment. It's going to be a delusion. It's going to be an attempt by other people to uh, sort of exert outside control and power over other people. So um, uh, and most of what he's against here, just to be clear, is Christianity. He's, he's against religion in general, but, but what he's surrounded by, I mean, in addition to Judaism, which of course is, is a percentage of population is always very small. Uh, what he's surrounded by, is Christians. And so that's mostly who he's riding against. Uh, When he was fleeing Germany, by the way, um, just before World War II, a friend told him that he needed to get out because he needed to escape his enemies, the Nazis. And uh, Freud's reply was that his true enemy was not the Nazis, but religion. (laughs) So, uh, So given who Freud is, and given all that he writes about religion and given all that he writes about unconscious uh, motivation and the way we're shaped by uh, unexplored, suppressed kinds of thoughts, lots of people have used Freud's theories on Freud. And they ask themselves, why is this guy, who initially is sympathetic to some things about religion, he, he says that he thought that uh, you know, Hebrew... Uh, went to a Hebrew uh, Bible, not Hebrew Bible, but a Hebrew um, teacher uh, who, who would tell Bible stories. And he said that, that, you know, he thought this was really good and he learned a lot. Uh, he has a childhood nanny who's Catholic, who he dearly loves. Um, she will be fired by the family when, uh, when it becomes obvious that she has been stealing from them. And uh, she had been telling him a lot about God. And uh, he was quite taken by all this. And then he's uh, traumatized by her firing. He will blame her later on and say some of his attachment issues come because he was attached to her, and then she ended up being uh, fired. So why would Freud be against God? Like, why would Freud come out against religion? So there's a half dozen theories that have been advanced. Some point, and this is very Freudian, some point to his father, uh, with whom Freud did not get along. He really, actually, he despised his father, and he says very cruel things about him. He accuses his father of being a sexual deviant. Uh, He has a lot of nasty things to say about his dad. Uh, His dad, he considers to be very weak uh, he doesn't, he's not able to support the family financially in the way that uh, Freud would have uh, liked or expected. And uh, he found out when Freud was about 12, he found out that his father uh, had, had accepted some uh, anti-Semitic uh, slurs or attacks. He had not fought back <clears throat> when he had been, uh, you know, demeaned for being a Jew. And uh, Freud, who will come out, Not literally, but almost literally, uh, swinging at people for anti Semitic, um, in in anti Semitic settings. Uh, He just was horrified that his father had done this. Uh, Freud's hero is Hannibal. uh, I have to confess, when I was reading this this week, somehow I went from Hannibal to Haman, which was confusing because in the story of Esther, Haman's the bad guy. Mordecai. I got Haman and Mordecai mixed up. I got Haman and Hannibal mixed up. It was a little bit uh, sideways, but Hannibal uh, is the guy who is going to get the the. Um, he's the Jewish guy is going to get the elephants over the Alps in order to defeat uh, the Romans in this uh, Jewish Roman conflict. And uh, by the way, neighbors of ours in Washington State. Uh, Lucy Shaw and and uh, and then her husband. She remarried after her first husband uh, died of cancer. Um, they uh, so so he when he graduated from Oxford, uh, he took a camp, He he bought, uh, rented whatever an elephant, and had a had a uh, like a four month journey, and it turns into a seventeen page spread in Life Magazine of taking an elephant over the Alps to prove that Hannibal uh, could have done it. So um, Hannibal is Freud's uh, hero, and he's he's horrified by his father, and he considers him to be uh, a weak person. And so some people say that because Freud's father uh, is a father figure, and obviously a lot of times what we think about God the father is shaped by what we think about our own father. Some people say, well, that's the source of his antipathy towards God. Uh, Some have suggested that it's the falling out that he had with his nanny, who was Catholic. And uh, again, he blames her for his later abandonment fears. Um, He wrote uh, later, we naturally feel hurt that a just God and a kindly providence do not protect us better from such influences during the most defenseless period of our life. So he's blaming God for the fact that he was hurt as an infant by this woman, um, his nanny, who had a belief in God. Uh, Some note that that the reason that he comes out swinging against uh, religion in general, Christianity in particular, is because of the anti-Semitism that he experienced um, as as a child and then later on as an adult. Um, So he, um, he says, my language is German, my culture, my attainments are German. I consider myself German intellectually I considered myself German intellectually until I noticed the growth of the anti-Semitic prejudice in Germany and German Austria. Since that time, I prefer to call myself a Jew. Um, so there's a couple stories that get told about um, about him when he was um, uh, when he was um, a relatively young man in his twenties. He is on a train and somehow. Um, he wants the window down, and other people don't want the window down. And he offers to uh, put his window up if other people on the other side of the, of the train will put their windows down. And uh, somehow this ends up in a, in some sort of yelling back and forth of people. And somebody says uh, about him, he's a dirty Jew. And, uh, and Freud said... Um, uh, at that moment, I, I, uh, I, I shouted down one guy, and he says, I said to the other guy, you, you and me right now, and he says, I was prepared to kill him. I was so mad. Um, so, uh, the, he says, the guy didn't step up, but that's one incident. And then there's another incident that his kids tell, that they were walking, and they come upon a, a group of people. So, obviously, uh, the Nazis are beginning, so he's got kids. So uh, uh, the Nazis are getting, beginning to gain some energy. There's some anti-Semitism that is there in Austria, and there's a bunch of uh, of anti there's an anti-Semitic crowd that's on the that's blocking their view on the sidewalk, and uh, they stopped, and they said, "My father, you know, said stay here," and he said he just proceeded right into the crowd, swinging his cane in every direction, and. Uh, so he made it clear that, uh, that uh, he was not ever going to back down from those kind of charges. So tragically, uh, historically, a lot of Christians have lined up against the Jews and uh, you know accused Jews of being Jesus killers. And so let me just pause here for a second and say <laughs> it's a Jewish story, right? The good guys and the bad guys are, are almost all Jews and uh, and. And Jesus is very clear that he's not blaming the Jews. He says he lays down his life for us. And the Father sort of claims the responsibility that he sends his son. And by the way, if the Jews had killed Jesus, he would have been stoned. It's the Romans that put Jesus to death. He's crucified on a cross. So, you know, th- that this is... A, and I share this in part because some anti-Semitism seems to be uh, on the uptick right now. Uh, obviously a horrible and tragic thing. But... Um, Anyway, so some say that he's against God because of the oppression that he felt because of anti-Semitism. Some say that it's the way that he suffered, uh, and there's there's the the law, there's the struggles that he had. I mean, we all have struggles. He had some profound struggles, and uh, and lost some loved ones, and uh, he's going to lose a daughter, uh, Sophie, that is tragic. He's going to lose a grandson uh, that that is going to put him into a deep funk for a while. And uh, he is really, I mean, he will say, uh, there just isn't any way that there can be a good, loving God. And by the way, maybe this is what, the way you are coming at this. Maybe you are struggling with this very question. It is a huge question, uh, sometimes referred to as the problem of evil. But we ask ourselves, where is God when I'm facing you know, oppression or ugliness or, or cancer or uh, where's God that I've lost my loved one, a child. You know, where's God when I'm unemployed? I can't, I can't seem to find first gear. Where's God? I'm praying, I'm trying. Maybe that's what you're going through right now. So let me say, real question, real question. And my answer to this question depends on who I'm talking to. So is it a, is it a real, real question? Uh, is it a, or is it a, an intellectual challenge, which it's also that? Uh, look, if it's an intellectual challenge, there's, there's one set of answers. I mean, C.S. Lewis will write about this. Many people will write about the problem of evil, problem of pain, all of this. Lewis, finally, part of what motivates him is he said, I, I had to stop and ask myself, why did I think there was good? Like, what was my standard for good? How did I have this sense of justice? If there's nothing in the world, if there's no God, if there's no right or wrong, and there's you know, then then where does this come from? The problem of evil, in one sense, is a problem for atheists as well as it is for Christians. If you're struggling, I mean, if this is not a head game for you, this is a real issue. Then I'm sorry, and I I think my my answer is not um, an answer. My answer is just to say I'm sorry, and and. I do believe that God loves you. I do believe that He is, He has shown that love by sending His Son, and Jesus is not without knowing what suffering is like. Like we're not, we're not facing a God who doesn't understand. He shows up and He suffers, and uh, so God knows what you're going through. I'm 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 sorry for your struggles. So it could have been that this was uh, what was hanging up for it. Could have been that He had intellectual. Uh, hang-ups about you know, the, the viability of the Christian faith or the, uh, the trustworthiness of, uh, of the New Testament or uh, any of these k- kinds of things. Um, Freud was clear that he did not want to believe in God simply because of tradition. I say yes, here here. I, I, don't, I don't think that I'm shaped by uh, tradition in that sense either. Um, so, uh, there are others. I mean, it's, it, it looks like, and there's a guy that will write about this, um, Rusty Wright, uh, will write about this. And I remember his name from my college ministry days, because he did a lot of sort of open air speaking on college campuses. And this is a question that comes up all the time. And Freud is somebody he, would, he wrote about. Uh, so he was writing about Freud. And he said, Freud's understanding of Christianity, and Freud will later admit this. Freud's understanding about Christianity seems to all be about Christianity as a way to um, deal with death. So again, I would say that's very Freudian. Freud would say he thought about his own death every day, which that seems to me to be sort of Freudian. Uh, But uh, or the, 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 the purpose of Christianity was to try and help people deal with their own death and also to uh, inculcate this sense of justice and that we've got to be good because society needs us to be good. Later on he will write and so he'd say, I had no real appreciation for the idea of Jesus and the cross and this whole idea of a substitutionary death. So um, so um, not really sure why Freud walks away from faith, but he does in a very strong way and, um, and almost in an act of defiance as a young guy, he will open his clinical practice on Easter Sunday in the morning, just to sort of say, in your face, right? Uh, I am going gonna, gonna to be acting uh, in contrary to the, the claims of uh, the Christian faith. So as an aside, uh, but also on faith, let me note that uh, he, has a, he had a deep friendship with a, a Christian pastor um, and this is a friendship that lasted for 30 years, and we've got a lot of their correspondence. Um, he, was, he was worried, and we've got the, the letter that he writes because he's worried before he comes out with his attack on Christianity, because again he writes four books sort of going after religion, he was worried that his friend uh, Oscar Pfister is the guy's name, uh, was going to take this poorly. And uh, Oscar replies back and says, um, I have always believed that every man should state his honest opinion aloud and plainly. You have always been tolerant towards me. And am I to be intolerant of your atheism? So uh, Freud was deeply relieved, uh, welcomed Fister's um, comments. And then Fister will write a critique of Freud's critique of religion. And uh, they will have very a very good friendship, very civil discussions. They agree to disagree. Oh, might we learn from them at this moment about how to disagree uh, agreeably. Um, so anyway, this correspondence lasts for 30 years. And Freud's daughter, uh, Anna, who becomes a rather celebrated uh Global figure. She will take over for her dad. She's not just famous because her dad was famous, but she sort of becomes the heir apparent. I mean, there's others, Carl Jung, there's a bunch of people that will sort of emerge out of Freud's shadow, uh, if you will. But Anna, his daughter, will go into the practice. Uh, she will s- spend more time focusing on women and uh, certain issues, and she will write some things and be, um, you know, be sort of a, uh, a, a a figure in her own right. But she says that um, as a child, uh, she writes about this, uh, she thinks back to this guy, uh, this pastor friend uh, of, of her dad's, and she said that he was human warmth and enthusiasm, and that uh, his visits contrasted with the impatience of the visiting psychologists who saw the family mealtime as an unwelcome interruption in their important discussions. Pfister enchanted the Freud children entering into their lives and was their most welcomed guest. So uh, Freud will write, again, glowingly about how much he appreciates uh, the the thoughtfulness and the care and the friendship uh, of Pfister. He will write, uh, he was a remarkable man and a true servant of God, who feels the needs to do spiritual good to everyone he meets. You did good in this way even to me. And uh, one of his letters to Pfister uh, opens up, Dear man of God, a letter from you is one of the best possible things that could be waiting for me uh, upon my return home. So, just to be clear, no indication that uh, Pfister persuaded Freud to put his faith in Christ. I'm not suggesting that at all. Um, Well, there's uh, a lot more that could be said about Freud. Um, Talked about his theories, talked about the fact that his theories have have largely fallen out of behavior, or out of favor. It's worth noting, uh, wouldn't be too surprised if uh, Freud gets canceled or has been canceled. His views about women, uh, whom he referred to as the dark continent, and his views about um, homosexuality and other um, and other sexual expressions and the terms he uses to describe them uh, would would op- perhaps place him in the category of uh, of, a, of a of a you know a dead white male that needs to be uh, that needs to be canceled. Now, by the way, I say that I know that uh, Whoopi Goldberg recently got in a lot of trouble on the View for suggesting that uh, the Holocaust wasn't racism because it was whites against whites and. And part of the, part of the af- apology tour and other things, uh, as I understand it, was to say that uh, Jews uh, are not to be considered in that same camp. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know who I'm offending with any of this, but, um, but there's a lot of reasons to suggest that he might get canceled for some of the things that he has written. Worth noting, he wrote his books not just for uh, educated people. He wrote lots of books. Unless you're going to be a Freud specialist, you cannot read all of Freud. He wrote lots of books, but he wrote them for educated lay people. You do not need a medical degree to follow him. Um, It's worth noting that uh, he was a big advocate of cocaine uh, in a a time before uh, the the negative effects of cocaine were discovered, uh, and cocaine was used by lots of people, and it was in soft drinks, uh, Coca-Cola, among others. Um, Freud uh, experimented with cocaine with his patients as an antidepressant, and uh, but this was all before um, the full understanding of the, of the deleterious effects of cocaine kicked in. Uh, you can read articles about Freud and whoever, like Freud and Nietzsche, uh, and how they played off of each other, and, and looking at, uh, looking at their relationships with their fathers and how that shaped them. Uh, I remember reading an article about Freud and Einstein and the different ways they supported their theories. So Freud was very uh, protective and and argued. um, You know, he met with lots of people, but he defended his theories with uh, a fair bit of uh, rigor. Einstein was apparently very open-handed with his theories and gave lots of credit to other people and said, I don't know if they're right or not, uh, and invited other people to sort of go after them. Um, So there's lots there that we could look at. Um, Let me just say, uh, I will will remind you, Freud is one of the main players shaping the 20th and so far into the 21st century and and reframing our understanding of who people are and how mental uh, cognition and and mental health and all these kinds of things ought to be understood and treated. Well, uh, that's it for now. And that is going to bring to an end our four who rule from the grave when we are back next, uh, episode number 74 I'm going to look back to the church and to some of the things that are happening then because we're hitting an explosive time, uh, especially in Protestant mission and expansion. And so there's uh, some things we've got to pay attention to. See you then.